We're continuing our unexpected series, but today is the last week, and I'm sure a few of you have in the back of your mind, oh, he's going to do one more next week, and that'll be unexpected. I wish I would have thought of that, because that would have been really good, but I didn't think of that until it was too late. So this is the last week. We're going to be starting a new series next week. I'm always excited about a new series, so um, that one's going to be called Turning Tables, and I think it's going to be awesome, um, and it's really going to help us uh, continue to grow. Um, and we'll continue to do unexpected things every now and then. Now that, you know, we've kind of broken the glass, broken the ice, uh, we'll just mess with things a little bit every now and then just to keep us on our toes and keep a sense of freshness. Um, but if you missed any of the messages of unexpected, I've probably gotten more feedback from this series than any series, maybe, or at least pretty close. It's right up there. Um, and so if you missed any of these messages, you really should go back. If you missed last Sunday... You have to go back and, and listen to that message. Um, we have a podcast that you can subscribe to. We have a YouTube channel. We have Facebook. We have uh, an app. There are all kinds of ways to stay up to date and to catch a message that you miss. And I also want to highlight, there are all kinds of ways to share a message that you hear. And I was thinking about that. Like, what would happen if every single person shared the message, shared the service with someone each week? What if everybody shared the Linwood service with at least somebody every week? And you have the technology in your hand to do that now, and you have the ability. And so each week, maybe be praying, who could I share this message with? Who would be particularly encouraged by the worship or by, by the sermon? And, and you can share that through one of these social media platforms. You can text them a link. You can send them an email. You can do all kinds of things to push the word. We have the ability today, more than we ever have before, to share what God is doing in our lives and, and to attach a personal note. This really encouraged me and you, Lord brought you to mind. Something like that um, could be really helpful. So today we are going to look at faith that amazes Jesus. That's our title today. And you might be thinking, well, what would it take to amaze Jesus, the all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe, what would it take to amaze him? And we're going to find our story in Matthew chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 13. So if you have one of our blue hardcover Bibles from here in the sanctuary, that's on page 1507. If you are joining us online or you brought your own Bible, I always encourage you to follow along in a paper copy or a digital copy of the Bible, but we'll also have it on the screen behind me. And I'm going to read this straight through, and then we'll kind of walk back through it and take some lessons uh, from it and get some deeper understanding in it. And the context right now in, in Matthew chapter 8 is, is Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so he comes down from the Sermon on the Mount. He enters Capernaum, um, or on his way down from the Sermon on the Mount. We're not quite sure exactly where that was, but we think it was pretty close to Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee. Um, he heals a leper, and then we pick up the narrative here. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant is at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I have not, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. So there's a number of things going on here in this passage that I kind of want to bring to light and, and help us understand. Often I'll mention this approach to scripture. What does it say? What does that mean? And how does it apply? So we'll take that format as well. And as we look at the first couple of verses there, as we get kind of into this story in verses 5 through 7, we're introduced to a centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman military officer that had charge over 100 soldiers. And so they were pretty high up. There might be squadron leaders and things like that below or uh, below him, but it all funneled up to him. And so in a region, there might be one, or if it's a larger region, maybe two or three centurions, but they would have charge over keeping the peace and collecting the taxes and doing the various uh, military and governmental roles, and they had superiors over them. But this was a man of some influence and some power. And for him to come to Jesus... We're told asking for help is pretty significant in and of itself. And the original language tends to lean more than it wasn't just a casual request. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says he was appealing to Jesus. And the original language, the Greek word, kind of indicates he might be pleading with or begging with or begging Jesus to heal his servant. That this was a deeply emotional um, and and very serious situation, and he was beseeching or pleading Jesus is very, very likely. But what also really stands out in these early verses is that this centurion addresses Jesus as Lord. This Roman officer with a hundred men at his disposal, and the Romans saw themselves as way above these Jewish people that they were ruling over. For him to address Jesus, not even a high-ranking Jewish official, but Jesus, this kind of from-the-margins, fringes uh, character or, or leader, to address him as Lord, as one who is in authority over him, is very, very unusual and certainly would have been unexpected to everyone around him. Why is this centurion calling him Lord? And so we don't know the answer to that. We don't have all the details. Maybe he was at the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he was doing crowd control when Jesus stood up and started talking about who's really blessed in this kingdom of God, which is coming into existence. Maybe he had witnessed some of the early miracles, or maybe he was there at the Jordan when the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove. Maybe he was there and just saw this leper cleansed. And suddenly hope was sparked. Maybe my servant could be healed too. Maybe this person that I care about could receive a miracle from Jesus. Whatever the circumstances that led up to that, he is there standing before Jesus. And Jesus agrees to go and heal. And we don't know why necessarily other than what's in the text. 
But we do see something very unexpected in his response as well. He says in verse 8, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And this represents or this displays a humility on this high-ranking Roman military official standing before what appeared to be a Jewish peasant. It shows a humility that he has and also a sensitivity to Jewish laws. He was, he was probably acquainted with the Jewish laws and customs which said that if Jesus went into this pagan's home, this unbeliever, this non-Jewish person's home, that he would be ritually unclean. He hadn't sinned, but he would be unclean in regards to temple worship and there would be a process in that cleansing that he would have to take. So he shows some sensitivity to that. He shows some humility. Now, not that, yes, you should come. You will come right now. He, he just says, look, you don't even have to come. And, and this really astonishes Jesus, we're told, in a few verses. But his faith is displayed in this phrase, just say the word. He has faith in Jesus' divine power that goes beyond Jesus' presence. He says, you're so powerful. I have faith and belief and trust and confidence in your ability to just speak and my servant will be healed. He reasons and he explains his rationale for this. He reasons that if I as a human have authority to tell someone to come, someone to go, someone to do something and it happens, then why wouldn't you, the Messiah, the, the incarnate God here on earth have authority that extends far beyond my authority. And so he kind of helps us understand his rationale behind that. And this, I believe, is what strikes Jesus to the point that we see in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So that's where we get our title today, Faith That Amazes Jesus. When we're told that Jesus was astonished, the Greek there means to marvel at or to be amazed by something very unique. So when it says he was astonished, it says he just kind of, whoa, he marveled at it. When was the last time you were astonished? When was the last time you were amazed by something? What was that experience like? There's some emotion that's tied to that. There's some physical sensation that might be tied to that, especially if there's any kind of danger or relief that might be associated with what is astonishing you or amazing you or what you're marveling at. I have to imagine that this all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe, there had to be at least somewhat of a dramatic effect that he was astonished for those around him to help them see how unique this was and to say, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel is a pretty bold claim. But this man's faith and his rationale behind it certainly did stand out. And it was unexpected in a number of different ways. And this word, this, this Greek word, I'm not going to try to pronounce, and that's not super significant, but what is significant is that this word, astonished or amazed, is used 44 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and the letters of, of the New Testament. 42 times it is used about Jesus, that he amazed people, or he astonished people, or they were amazed, or they marveled at 
something he said or something he did. 42 out of the 44 times it is said about Jesus. Two times it is said by Jesus. Once right here. And another time in Mark chapter 6 when he is marveling at the lack of faith among the people of Nazareth. When Jesus marvels, it's at a centurion's faith in this instance and at the lack of faith in his own hometown. And I think the disparity between those two certainly points us to the the second half of this teaching or the second half of this passage because there's a huge contrast between the centurion's faith in this story and the unbelief or lack of faith among God's own people, the Israelites. And we'll see Paul comment on this a number of times, that he went first to the Jew, first to spread the good news that the Messiah had come and the gates of heaven were thrown open. And and not only is this good news for all of us Jews, Paul would say, but this is good news for the whole world. Everybody's welcome. And many Jews took offense at that. They said, no, we are the covenant people of God. This is not for everyone. This is for us. And he would teach and he would try to explain and they would throw stones and they would try to lynch him and they would try to kill him. And so eventually he says, okay, I'm shaking the dust off my feet. I am now the apostle to the Gentiles. I will go where the message is being received. And so there's an interesting interplay that we see starting here in this this contrast between the centurion's faith. It's sort of a precursor or a foreshadowing to the Gentiles' reception of the news of the Messiah, contrasted with Israel's lack of faith. And Jesus even speaks to this as well. But then in verse 11 and 12, he gets into a passage that might be a little difficult to understand on a first reading. When you read this and you think, okay, I got you on verse 10 and, you know, not finding anyone with such faith in Israel. But then he says in verse 11 that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like, well, Jesus, I understood you had a teachable moment. That's not the lesson I was expecting, right? What are you talking about? People coming from the east and the west and sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the subjects of the kingdom being thrown out. Well, if we kind of understand this, many will come from outside Israel. That's been prophesied from the beginning. So when he says that people will come from the east and from the west, he's basically saying there are going to be a lot of people that come into the kingdom of God, which is not just a political kingdom. They're going to come into the kingdom of God from outside the kingdom of God. And not only that, these pagans and Gentiles will sit at the table at the great feast in heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says that they will take their places, which means that they were expected. They have a place. There's a seat with their name on them. Jesus is saying they're being expected by God up in heaven to have a place at the great wedding banquet, the feast of the Lamb and his church. In the end of all times, they have a spot there. And they're going to come from outside God's kingdom, from outside the political nation of Israel. They're coming from outside And not only that, and I think this had to break Jesus' heart, the subjects of the kingdom, the ESV translates it the sons of the kingdom. So these are the Israelites, these are the people of God, this is the chosen nation, this is the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes. The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
He's saying their failure to live by faith, their failure to embrace the Messiah, their failure to understand God's divine plan is not just for them, it's for everyone, will mean that they will reject the new covenant that is being offered in Christ's blood. And they will be excluded from the new covenant. They will be rejected and they will be on the outside. So those that should have been on the inside will be on the outside. And those that were on the outside will be coming in. There's a great reversal that's taking place here. Jesus is prophesying it. And it did not take long for the Gentile church to outgrow the Jewish church. For the number of Gentiles coming to the faith to surpass the number of Jewish converts. And Jesus is prophesying it right here. He's saying there's going to be a lot of people that are going to take offense at this new covenant from within God's chosen people. And so that's what he's talking about in verse 11 and 12. And it's kind of what I hit on a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the worst surprise ever. That there's going to be a lot of people who, who think they're in just by birthright or by their last name or by their political affiliation in the people of, of Israel that are not going to be in. And there are going to be a lot of people that were on the outside that are embraced and welcomed in. And they run to this new covenant. They run to this new kingdom. And they can't wait to get there. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this passage in the message translation. He says, this man, this centurion, these are Jesus' words, verse 11 and 12. This man is the vanguard of many outsiders who will soon be coming from all directions, streaming in from the east, pouring in from the west, sitting down at God's kingdom banquet alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then those who grew up in the faith but had no faith will find themselves out in the cold, outsiders to grace, and wondering what happened. You talk about the worst surprise ever. Then Jesus concludes this passage and this story, and he says to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. And that phrase, just as you believed it would, the centurion had faith not only to ask, but also to say to Jesus, You don't have to come into my house, remember? He believed in Jesus' power to heal from a distance. He believed in Jesus' power to say a word. Just like God's ability to speak the universe into existence. He believed in that. And Jesus says, the healing will take place just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. And there are a few other instances in the Gospels where some similar construct takes place. Where it says, according to your faith, you've been healed. Or Jesus saw their faith and healed a cripple. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. These statements come out of Jesus' mouth. And it was when I got to this point, And I was saying, okay, God, I've done the teaching. I know what it says. I want to make application. I know what it means. But how do we apply that to our lives? This is where my preparation for this message took an unexpected turn. And there was a temptation to reduce the lesson to the strength and the depth of the centurion's faith. And to preach one of these, you know, real inspiring, you know, deepen your faith and God will do whatever you ask him to. Have you ever heard one of those messages? Did you walk away feeling better? And encouraged and inspired? 
Or did you walk away saying, well, what's wrong with me? That what I prayed for didn't happen. What's wrong with me? That my friend or my loved one wasn't healed. Why wasn't my faith enough? And I, I want to pause here for a moment. Because I believe there is a big difference between faith in Jesus and who he is and what he can do and a faith in faith. And as a pastor, I've seen both. And I've seen people put their faith in faith and not in Jesus and put their faith in the ability to muster up enough emotion to somehow make God in their debt. And faith is not a lever to get God to do what we want. Faith must be in God first. And in each of these instances and in this story, the faith, the belief, the trust is in Jesus. It is in God. It is in Jesus' ability, in God's ability to come through. And I believe we must approach God with great faith in his ability because he is able. He can do anything but fail. But we must also approach him with great confidence in his goodness and with a willingness to accept whatever outcome may happen. We must approach him with the same humility. We must approach him with a humility that Jesus himself had. There's this powerful passage in Philippians chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing to it, but it says, have this mind among you that Christ, though in very nature God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be used to his own advantage, but he humbled himself and he made himself obedient even unto death even to death on a cross, the most humiliating, painful, excruciating way to die. That's the mind that we must have among us. Now, I firmly believe in the power of prayer. And I pray a lot. I pray more now than at any other season in my life. And I've seen prayer to be powerful and effective way too many times to doubt the power of prayer. And the Bible makes it clear that prayer changes things and that we are commanded to pray and Jesus even teaches us how to pray. So there is, by extension, an expectation that we will pray. Prayer is powerful and effective. However, I don't believe that in every circumstance or even that in most circumstances that it is the amount of faith that a prayer, a person who's praying has that determines the outcome. I do believe that people have the spiritual gift of faith And I like to have friends who have the spiritual gift of faith and they speak faith into people and they pray with a faith that I say, man, I I wish I had that passion and that fervor. But I have seen people of great faith suffer incredibly. People of great faith face the realities of living in a fallen world where terrible, unspeakable, unexplainable things happen. And I'll just be honest with you, I cannot imagine that God sits up in heaven and says, oh, I'm not going to heal that kid because their faith isn't enough. That's absurd. So there are great mysteries involved with all of this. I recognize that. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you I have all the answers. (laughs) I don't. 
That's why we need great faith in who he is and in his goodness and in his ability, just as the sermon bumper video says, to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because here's what I do know. And this is our bottom line today. I couldn't think of a better one. God is good all the time. Let's say that one together. You know it. God is good all the time. And all the time? Amen. God is good. In fact, God is perfect. And he is perfect even when we don't understand. Even when we don't understand what it looks like he's doing. When we can't see. And I believe that is the faith that amazes Jesus even more, is the faith that can say, God, I believe in your power and your ability to do this, but I also believe in your goodness if you don't. And it strikes me that the first request that we find in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, is thy will be done. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. That's praise. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How many of your prayers start that way? Starting with, God, here's my request, but I know more than anything I want your will to be done, and I know more than anything your will will be done. I've even been chastised as a pastor for praying a thy will be done type of prayer. People say, I don't need that doubt. I need faith that this is going to happen. See, their faith was in faith. Their faith wasn't in God and in his ability to be with us. Jesus even promised, you will have troubles, but I'll be with you in the midst of those troubles. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. And guess what? I've overcome the world. My death and resurrection have overcome. They have thrown open a blissful eternity in the presence of God forever because God is good all the time. And there's a really cool example of this in the Old Testament that I wanted to preach during this series. But I just preached a little while ago, and I'm thinking about a series on Daniel uh, in the next year or two. And so I didn't preach a message on it, but I want to highlight this story for this element of it. It's the story of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. You're probably somewhat familiar with this story. They're in the court of a foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar. He's a pretty bad dude. He's about as bad as anybody in the history of the world at this point. And he has set up this huge golden statue, and he's commanded that every time the music plays, everybody worships the statue, which really represents him. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they haven't drawn the line on a lot of other things, but they draw the line here. They say, we're not doing that. We worship one God. And the penalty for not doing that was to be thrown into the fiery furnace, And so there's this passage, kind of, when this comes to a crescendo, when this story reaches its climax, and he has said, you bow down right now or you're going into the furnace. We pick up in verse 16 of Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. 
So they say, not only do we have confidence and trust and faith that he is able, and if you throw us in there, he's going to rescue us. And I think that you could take that two ways. One, that he'll rescue us from the fire, or one, that he'll rescue us through the fire, and that we will be ushered into an eternity in heaven with him forever. So we're good either way. And for us Christians, we have the ability to face every circumstance as a win-win situation. Either God will deliver me, or I'll go to be with him. Paul says something very, very similar. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's win-win. You want to take, drag me out of town and stone me to death? It's a win-win. You want to take me out? It's a win-win. Either God delivers me and I keep on ministering and to live is Christ, or I go to be with him. It's a win-win. And there is a beautiful, beautiful song that came out of, I believe, this story or at least references the story that I want to play for you. And we've never done this before, so this is somewhat unexpected. But even if he does not, they had confidence. And they were going to die in the name of honor before they were going to kneel before a foreign god or some ridiculous statue. So take a look at this song. Don't feel the need to sing along. The lyrics are on the screen, but just let this minister to you. And I'll come back up in a few minutes. Amen. Now, if you know the story in Daniel chapter 3, you know that they are saved from the fire. But not only that, that when Nebuchadnezzar, the evil, wicked king, looks into the fiery furnace that got heated up so hot that the people that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace perished, he sees a fourth man, he says, the one that looked like a son of the gods. Jesus was that fourth man. We believe, scholars agree, he was that fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's the same Jesus that promises to be with us in every storm. That's the same Jesus that faced his own even-if moment. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was sentenced to crucifixion, he prayed a prayer that said, God, Father, Daddy, if there's any way that this can pass, let it pass. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And it was that prayer, that commitment, that confidence in our Savior that led to our salvation. And if you are in Christ, there is a resurrection that awaits you as well. There is a resurrection that awaits you that even in the storm, even in the unexpected bad things that happen in our lives, even in a terrible diagnosis or a broken relationship or a betrayal or anything else that this life can throw at us, we can say, even if, even if you don't answer this prayer the way that I want you to answer this prayer, even if it's going to be okay. We're going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And as the people of God, we have to be able to say, come what may, I will say, it is well with my soul. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for 
your promises, Lord. You are exactly who you said you are. And you can do everything you said you would do. And the salvation that we have in you, Lord, can guard us from despair. From, can guard us from the loss of our faith. Lord, help us to put our hope and our trust and our confidence entirely in you. Entirely in your ability to save us from the fires of life or through the fires of life. That you will be with us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And you will work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. It's in Jesus' name we pray.